If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with breaking news.、Uh, and it is bad news for Donald Trump and his adult children. That is because Donald, Don Jr., and Ivanka have now been ordered to give depositions under oath in the civil investigation into their family's business dealings led by New York Attorney General Letitia James. James's office has been conducting a three year investigation into the Trump Organization's finances and whether Trump artificially inflated and deflated the value of his assets. For loan and tax purposes. Last month, James tweeted that her office had uncovered significant evidence that the Trumps did just that. In his ruling today, the judge stated in the final analysis, a state attorney general commences investigating a business entity, uncovers copious evidence of possible financial fraud, and w a n t to question under oath several of the entity's principles, including its namesake. She has the clear right to do so. The investigation started after Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, testified to Congress in 2019 that Trump and his employees had manipulated his net worth to suit his financial interests. To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. And where would the committee find more information on this? Do you think we need to review his financial statements and his tax returns in order to compare them? Yes, and you'd find it at the Trump org. Do you know, to your knowledge, was the president interested in reducing his local real estate bills, tax bills? Yes. And how did he do that? What you do is you deflate the value of the asset, and then you put in a request to the tax department、uh, for a deduction. Attorney General James responded to the decision, writing in part, Today, justice prevailed. No one will be permitted to stand in the way of the pursuit of justice. No matter how powerful they are, no one is above the law. The Trumps now have 21 days to show up and answer questions under oath. The lawyer for Don Jr. and Ivanka released a statement indicating that it's likely they will appeal. They, it should be no surprise, of course, that Donald Sr. will likely do the same. Joining me now, Tim O'Brien, senior columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and Tristan Snell, former assistant attorney general of New York. Thank you both for being here. And I, I want to play very quickly because Letitia James also responded to Donald Trump's assertion that this investigation is simply reverse racism, right? Because she is black. The, the current、um, uh, pro- top prosecutor in the state is also black, or the, she and the DA are black, sorry. And there is also a, a black、uh, attorney general investigating him out of Georgia. Here is what she had to say to that charge. No one is above the law.、Um, and that、um, I pursue cases based on evidence, based on facts, and based on an analysis of the law. And that the politics stop at my door. He will not evade us. He will not stop us from investigating、um, into ensuring that individuals, no matter what title they hold, are following the law. And I'm confident that we will win. 
You know, and the other thing that he should be confident about, Tristan Snell, is that Letitia James is not going to be scared away by threats or by, you know, whatever it is that he wants to say about her. And she also has a pretty darn good track record when it comes to shutting down his charities that he they were operating that really weren't real charities and Trump University. She has a decent track record. Your thoughts? Uh, the, the office is one of the only entities that has managed to hold Donald Trump accountable. The New York Attorney General's office, and I'm proud to have been a member of that office and worked on the Trump University case. You know, we, we, I'm, I'm still going to say we, I can't help it. We, we actually held the man accountable, and very, very few people have. They are not afraid to go after him. They've gone toe-to-toe with him and his lawyers a bunch of times. They're not going to stand down on this. They're going to keep fighting. Yeah, and, and the thing is, that the who does not have a really good track record, Tim O'Brien, is Donald Trump when he's been deposed, right? I mean, you you had the, the pleasure of having uh, having deposed him. And this is from that deposition. This is in 2007. And this was the lawsuit about his net worth. Ta-da. Um, and it was he was asked, Mr. Trump, have you always been completely truthful in your public statements about your net worth or pro- uh, of properties? He said, I try. And then uh, Mr. Karasny asked him, have you ever not been truthful? And he said, my net worth fluctuates and it goes up and down with the markets and with my attitudes and feelings, even my own feelings. But I try. This does not sound like a strong defense, Tim. Uh, his defense is, is I make it up. That's sort of the distillation of what he just said there. You know, at another part in the same deposition, Joy, um, we were asking him how he calculated profits and losses at his golf courses. And he said, well, I don't keep any paper records of those things. And our lawyer said, well, then how do you know? And he said, I use mental projections. And I've always thought that the term mental projections could define so many things in Donald Trump's life, uh, including when he mentally projects racism onto a judge, even though I don't think any any politician in the modern era has weaponized racism in, in our culture on the political stage to the extent that Donald Trump himself has. Uh, and I think that he's, I think right now he's very cornered. That screed that he went on the other night that, that got all over social media about um, you know, displaying the kind of personal animus he has towards Tish James, as well as the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Um, our evidence of, I, I think, obviously, uh, he's, you know, he can't handle criticism uh, at all in small doses. But this is really a measure, I think, of how cornered he feels by these lawsuits. He is, he is, there, he is going to have to testify under oath at some point, even if he continues to try to avoid doing so. When yeah. that occurs, I mean, these prosecutors mm-hmm. are going to put paper across the table and 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 hold him to account. It's a very new scenario for him in that regard. Well, and he can't lie, right? Because he, here's the thing, you know, Tristan Stell, like if he goes and he lies in those depositions, that's a crime, right? So he's sort of cornered and, and they either have to tell the truth and damn themselves because your own lawyer admitted this under oath to Congress that you do this. So you either have to lie and get in trouble, right. you know, and, and go down for perjury or, or you have to tell the truth. And then that can, in theory, I guess, be used against him in, in, a, in, a, in a successive case. So the kicker is that in a civil case, uh, you know, those statements can all be used against him, including any attempt to plead the fifth. So if he pleads mm. the fifth uh, in this matter, which is a civil prosecution, effectively, right. a civil, it's a civil investigatory matter, it can be used against him. The trier of fact, judge or jury, can then basically take those points where the Trumps have pled the fifth and 
draw their own assumptions as to whether or not that was trying to hide some sort of legal liability. And then, okay, so then, and then I, to come back to you for a second, Tim, what significance then is it? And it seems to be pretty significant that that, that Mazars, the, the the company that's his accountant, has said they've washed their hands of him and said we really cannot, you know, credibly rely on on any of this. Like the fact that they have dumped him and said they can't vouch for his financial statements. What's the significance of that for for this particular case? Well, for 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 well, for, first of all, for any business that loses their account, it, it can it can be, be a mortal blow. It's hard for banks to do business with you. It's hard for business partners to do business with you. Uh, so that's that's just a red flag in their business life. In terms of the case, I think the significance of this isn't simply that they said we're washing our hands of you. They had that delicious little term in their letter that that Tish James released, in which they referred to we have an un an unwaivable conflict. And and I read that to mean that they're cooperating and they're cooperating mm. with prosecutors, yeah. uh, which, you know, mm. in Trump's world, his in-house accountant has been indicted. His Alan Weisselberg, his external accountants now appear to be cooperating with prosecutors. So everyone who knows the money trail and where it leads in Trumplandia is on the opposite side of the table from him now. Again, this is a fresh situation for him. You know, people talk about Donald Trump having nine lives, which he's had. Mm -hmm. I think he's on his eighth and a half, maybe at this point. <laughs> um, he has not been able to navigate a scenario where he's got uh, well-resourced, aggressive prosecutors breathing down his neck like this. And he also has not been able to beat these kinds of things in New York. I mean, when Letitia James says no one's above the law, well, in New York, right? Because it does seem, Tristan, that this is where he is going to be held accountable. You said, you, you know, you, as you said, you were part of the team that did it. So it has only, to my knowledge, been done in New York. And here's what the judge, so the, this is the judge refuting this argument um, that the, that, that the Mazar announcement that they've mm -hmm. washed their hands of Trump should actually end the investigation. That is what Trump claimed. And, and this, they, they said this, the, the idea that an accounting firm's announcement that no one should rely on a decade's worth of financial statements that is issued based on numbers submitted by an entity somehow exonerates that entity and renders an investigation into its past practices moot is reminiscent of Lewis Carroll. Uh, when I see, what is it? When I, when I use a word Humpty Dumpty said, it just means what I chose it to mean. Uh, neither more nor less. George Orwell, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, and alternative facts. To proclaim that the Mazars red flag warning that the Trump financial statements are, are unreliable suddenly renders the Office of Attorney General's longstanding investigation moot is as audacious as it's preposterous. They couldn't have been more clear. What do you think that sort of, uh, what does that mean in your view for his appeals? Because it doesn't sound like, okay, they'll appeal, the, the Trump kids will appeal. It doesn't feel like that's going to go anywhere. So, look, the real kicker here is that the, the, the Trump defense in this matter uh, regarding the testimony and the documents and don't sleep on the documents. The documents right. that they're being forced to hand over here are also extremely important here. So the, the kicker is that the Trump defense really boils down to, uh, well, Tish James, when she was running for AG, she said not nice things about how she was going to prosecute me, thereby she has animosity or animus towards me, thereby the investigation 
is tainted or, or biased in some way. Uh, the, the problem with that is that the court, and this is part of why the, the judge was making such strong remarks here regarding uh, everything with Trump and Mazers and everything, is that they've already looked at a lot of the documents, the evidence, not the arguments, the evidence in this case has already been looked at by the judge in camera, i.e. it's under, it's, it's, Basically, the court takes it and it's not on the public record. All of this stuff is under seal. This judge has already seen all of this. Any other judges, if they need to review documents in camera to determine whether or not there's a valid investigation here, they're going to be able to look at those documents too. And it looks like any judge that takes a look at the documents that the AG's office has pulled together is going to realize it's not animus, it's not racism, Mm -hmm. it's receipts. That's what's going on here. They've got the evidence, and now they have to get the testimony. That's the way this works. So I don't really see where they do have a defense. Drip, drip, drip. You just never know, Uh, and you can't run from it by moving to Florida. Uh, Thank you, Tim O'Brien, Tristan Snell. Thank you both very much. (laughs) Up next on The Readout, the U.S. again accuses Russia of looking for a false pretext to invade Ukraine, something America knows a little something about. Plus, the shocking police response to a New Jersey mall fight with police treating one kid very gently while immediately jumping on the black teenager and putting him in cuffs. That young man and his father join me tonight. And tonight's absolute worst are trying to erase black history in every way they can. The readout continues after this. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. A moment of truth has arrived in the Russian standoff over Ukraine as Vladimir Putin contemplates a war of choice in the coming days. Now, while there's no telling exactly what might happen, Putin has escalated this crisis, which for the record is entirely of his own making. And it's become abundantly clear that he is deliberately trying to mislead the world. Putin claimed yesterday that he's pulling back some of his forces, but in fact, he actually added 7,000 more troops at the border. He also claimed in a video staged for the cameras on Monday that he was open to additional diplomacy. But this morning, he expelled the second highest ranking American diplomat from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. That's not to mention almost 600 ceasefire violations along the front lines, which have suddenly increased, according to observers. 
That includes the shelling of a kindergarten in eastern Ukraine by Russian-backed militias, which Kyiv called a big provocation. Given those developments, President Biden delivered a sobering assessment of the situation this morning. They have not moved any of their troops out. They've moved more troops in, number one. Number two, we have reason to believe that they are engaged in a false flag operation. They have an excuse to go in. Every indication we have is they're prepared to go into Ukraine, attack Ukraine. Yes, Not, I, my sense this will happen in the next several days. Separately, Secretary of State Antony Blinken took a last-minute detour on his way to Munich to give an unannounced address before the United Nations Security Council. Among other things, Blinken detailed the false flag operation that Russia might try to stage to justify an invasion, which the U.S. has been warning of for two weeks. Russia plans to manufacture a pretext for its attack. This could be a violent event that Russia will blame on Ukraine or an outrageous accusation that Russia will level against the Ukrainian government. Russian media has already begun to spread some of these false alarms and claims to maximize public outrage, to lay the groundwork for an invented justification for war. Like clockwork, Russia is now manufacturing allegations, as you just heard, that could be used as that potential pretext for war, just as the administration has been predicting. They are fabricating claims that Russian-speaking citizens of eastern Ukraine are the victims of genocide. And today they also brought those bogus claims to the U.N. Now, if any of that sounds familiar, that is because even in our own country, when a president is determined to go to war, this is what the buildup looks like. Those, those who remember the history of Vietnam with the Gulf of Tonkin incident or the run-up to Iraq know that the justifications for war can be disingenuous at best. In the latter case, the late General Colin Powell was handed the dubious distinction of making a regrettable speech to the U.N., laying out the Bush-Cheney administration's so-called evidence of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. Of course, those claims proved to be false. And Secretary Blinken alluded to that in his address today, making clear that this is different. Now, I'm mindful that some have called into question our information, recalling previous instances where intelligence ultimately did not bear out. But let me be clear. I am here today not to start a war, but to prevent one. Joining me now from Moscow is NBC News reporter Matthew Bodner and Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of The World, A Brief Introduction. Thank you both for being here, Matt. I want to start uh, with you. This is the, the, the official Russian response to um, the U.S. proposal to avert a war, and it is this. It says, in the absence of readiness of the American side to agree to firm, legally binding guarantees of our security, Russia will be forced to respond, including by implementing military technical measures. In that same message, they also claim there is no and there are no plans for any Russian invasion of Ukraine, which grammatically is odd. But what do you make um, of the on the ground sort of feel that you get there in Moscow versus what they are officially saying that they do not have plans to invade Ukraine? Thank you, Joy. Well, it's an interesting situation here in Moscow. So. Let's just start. If you go and ask uh, an ordinary Russian on the street, for example, they will tell you without any doubt that war is impossible. And now you're also going to hear a lot of accusations that 
all of this fear of war that's, that's being kind of felt in Ukraine, that's being felt in the West, is somehow some kind of information war waged by the United States against Russia to try to justify all kinds of nefarious acts, be that just more sanctions, uh, uh, kind of in the best case scenario, or actually encouraging Ukraine to go and attack those rebel regions in eastern Ukraine. Uh, they would say attack Russian speakers in, in the very worst case scenario. So that's that's on the one hand there. We're also, you know, not hearing a lot about the military maneuvers here on the Russian side from the Russian government. It's one of the more interesting things about this entire situation is, you know, we can see you don't you don't really have to take U.S. government officials at their word for it. You can see in satellite photos, commercial satellite photos, open source stuff on social media that Russia has amassed an incredible amount of troops on Ukraine's borders in Belarus, in occupied Crimea. But they're not really getting any sense of that uh, on the ground. So when Russia, when, when, you, when you hear these things on the official level, I think Russians mostly get the sense that their government is playing a game. There's this kind of disconnect between what we feel to be kind of the real stakes here, a massive war in Europe and what the Russian people feel. They're kind of brushing it off uh, uh, as a game and they just, they just don't believe the hype and we see it being actively used, uh, you know, spun domestically to kind of undermine what little credibility the United States government might have had amongst your, your kind of uh, on the street Russian, for example. Now, uh, you mentioned that, that written response today this was a very serious step, I think, from Moscow. You know, we've, we've, been, we've been in this situation for more than a month now, perhaps even six weeks since Russia first started demanding written responses to those demands. The U.S. delivered that three weeks ago. They've kind of been teasing their response. And meanwhile, there's been, you know, this shuttle diplomacy, leaders coming back and forth, phone calls, kind of building up this hope that maybe Russia was, in fact, is, in fact, still interested in talking. But today, when they finally... Re delivered their response to the U.S. written response. It came with, as you mentioned, uh, a notification that the deputy ambassador was being expelled. And it was right. exactly kind of what we'd been hearing at the core, that Russia is interested in diplomacy so long as that diplomacy gets them exactly what they want. What they want. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, Richard, Haas, the, the thing about this, it, it did remind me as a, you know, you, you sort of look at the saying that there are atrocities that you don't have evidence of sort of building it up and trying to make it sound as if you would only be going in, not because you want to invade a country that hasn't attacked you, but because you have to uh, in order for, you know, there's some humanitarian reason you have to be there. A lot of this did sound to me like the run up to the Iraq war. Of course, the difference here is that there is no coalition of the willing, right? This would be all of Europe amassed against Russia. Russia would pay a tremendous price for it. Um, and the only thing that would be similar about it in Iraq is it would be a quagmire. Um, there was a piece that um, David Ignatius wrote today, and he wrote, Russian President Vladimir Putin would quickly win the initial tactical phase of the war, sounds like Iraq, if it comes, but it, then Putin's real battle would begin. If Russia and its Ukrainian proxies try to stabilize a country whose people largely detest them, if just 10% of Ukraine's 40 million people decide to try to actively resist occupation, they would mount a powerful insurgency. It sounds like this would be Iraq on steroids. Why would he do it anyway? Joy, let me say a couple of things. One is uh, I take offense at the comparison to the run-up to the Iraq war. Uh, the difference in the run-up to the Iraq war is the U.S. government put out intelligence that every single person I knew in the U.S. government at the time, including myself, thought was accurate. Turned out subsequently it was not. Colin Powell did not lie. Russian officials right now are coming up with lies in order to create a pretext for going in. 
to just uh, get, get off on the wrong foot with you. Completely different situations, I would argue. Where I think there are parallels is that it's always easier to go in. And at the conventional phase of the battle, the Russians would prevail in. But I think the occupation of Ukraine could prove to be extraordinarily difficult, made more difficult in part by the cohesion that the Russians have produced amongst the Ukrainian people and the arms that the United States uh, has, has provided. But the Russians are creating a pretext. Indeed, it was the same pretext they used in 2014. They went into Crimea, they went into eastern Ukraine to, to protect their Russian tip and camp. And that's why I take what happened in the last 24 hours seriously. Mr. Putin always tries to present himself in Russia as the victim. His hand is forced. And he thinks that this is probably the best argument he can use back at home because he has to be worried. If he goes in, there is going to be the economic cost of sanctions. More important, there'll be body bags coming back home of Russian soldiers. And he has to be somewhat mindful, uh, given Afghanistan, that the last time Russia did that on a significant scale, it ended up bringing about regime change inside then the Soviet Union. Well, the, the, I think the comparison actually is more apt for that, because you had an administration in the U.S. that already decided they wanted to invade Iraq. And then the intelligence sort of backed up what they wanted to do because they wanted it to. Right. I mean, in this case, no, it appears sorry, that for no. whatever reason, Putin wants to have a conflict that this other country didn't start, has done nothing to them. All they've done is not want to be part of his of his sort of sphere of influence. They want to be part of Europe's sphere of influence. That's all they've done. But he he seems to want a conflict that the other side hasn't started and has nothing to do with. Look, Mr. Putin clearly wants uh, to get Ukraine within the Russian sphere of influence. He does not want Ukraine to affiliate with the European Union. Obviously, he doesn't want it to affiliate with NATO. He doesn't want Ukraine to be a thriving democracy. I would set an example that some people in Russia might notice and say, why there, not here? I understand all those. But again, uh, the parallel to Iraq to me is really offensive. It's incorrect. Yes, there were people who wanted to go to war. But the reason most of the people in the Bush administration wanted to go to war was because they did believe Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And they did believe after 9-11 that was a risk we couldn't, we couldn't take. Now, I wasn't one of those. I was in the administration. I disagreed with the decision to go to war. But again, I think it's really unfair to say that people misrepresented the intelligence. People went with what they thought the intelligence was. Only in retrospect did it become clear that the interpretation was wrong. Well, we can we could have a whole show on, on the Iraq war. We, we do not have time to do it now. But we do appreciate uh, you being here, Matt Bodner, Richard Haas. Thank you both very much. Still ahead on The Readout. A disturbing incident at a New Jersey mall is just the latest viral display of racial inequities in law enforcement. The teenager who was handcuffed in that incident joins me next. We'll be right back. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
Over the weekend, a very disturbing video went viral. And in a moment, I am going to show it to you. But while you watch it, I want you to ask yourself, if you believe that we in America truly have equal justice under the law. Now, first, some context. You are about to see two teenagers, two teenagers at a mall in Bridgewater, New Jersey, who get into a fight, something that from time to time teenagers do. But I want you to pay close attention to what happens when the police arrive. Your eyes are not deceiving you. You just witnessed two uniformed police officers breaking up the fight by pulling the kid who was on top up, gently seating him, and then tackling and pinning the black teenager, a knee in his back, face on the ground, and handcuffing him. The other kid, the one who was not black, was brushed aside and basically free to go about his business. That teen told a WPIX reporter that he did not understand why he had not been cuffed and said that he even offered to allow them to cuff him too. The Bridgewater Township Police Department is now under fire for that incident, as you can imagine, which went viral on social media yesterday. In a statement, they said, we recognize that this video has made members of our community upset and are calling for an internal affairs investigation. You think? New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy told reporters that he had seen the video and was deeply disturbed by what appears to be racially disparate treatment in this video. Joining me now is Zakai Hussein, the young man who tackled the young man who was tackled by the police and his father, Jihad Hussein, and their lawyer, Ben Crump. Thank you both for being here. And um, Zakai, first of all, I'm pronouncing your name correctly. It's Zakai, right? Yes. I'm going to make sure. Okay, good. So, Zakai, tell me first, how did the the incident between you and the other boys start? Uh, so my friend was arguing with a high schooler and I say something about it because he was bullying him because he was smaller. He's bigger than him. He was smaller. He's shorter and stuff like that. He's younger. So I don't like the fact that he's bullying him. I like bullies. I say something about it. And then he starts doing the same thing to me. So he puts his hands in my face. I slap it away after asking him to asking him to get his hands out of my face and then he pushes me i start throwing punches and then we end up on the ground and the male officer pushes me in my back while the female officer pulls him away and then comes and helps handcuff me and put her knee in my back too were you detained were you arrested uh yeah how long were you detained uh for like 20, 30 minutes. For 20 or 30 minutes. To, to your knowledge, and I know you were more focused on what was happening to you. Do you know if the other boy was detained? Uh, he wasn't. He was not. Okay. I, I want to now ask your dad a question. Um, were you called? Did the police allow your son to call you to tell, uh, to tell you what was going on? Well, they allowed him to call my wife and they had explained portion of the story and had her come down to the mall so that he could be picked up. So we were aware. Were you aware that the other teenager was not detained? No, it wasn't until after 
Zakai was picked up that we were able to find out through video and conversation that the other child was not detained. And, and do, you, do you mind if I ask, how old are you? How old are you, Zakai? Uh, 14. You're 14. And do you know how old the other teenager is? Uh, 16. So he's older than you. He was on top uh, yeah. of you. Okay, so he's older than you. He was picking on another kid. You confronted him, and then you get into the altercation. He's on top of you. The police pull him off of you, and you were detained for 30 minutes. Is that is that accurate? Yes. Ben, you know, I think everybody black knows that, that, that this is unfortunately the way that we are policed in general, unfortunately, or the way we unfortunately have come to presume we're going to be policed. But this sounds so blatantly um, discriminatory. I cannot understand how possibly uh, this police department can try to explain it. Can you think of any reason why the older teen was not detained? Joe, I cannot. It's uh, the reason why the video, I believe, has went viral. People are outraged, especially parents of children of color, because they understand it's things like this, this uh, profiling and stereotyping of our children that leads to a Trayvon Martin. It leads to Ahmaud Arbery. And you just scratch your head, Joe, and you say, why was it that the black kid was presumed guilty and the white kid was presumed innocent. The black kid was put face down with a knee in his back while the white kid was coddled and allowed to sit on the chair and watch them humiliate the black kid. And the black kid, why was he put in handcuffs and detained, I believe, uh, unreasonably for almost 30 minutes? And the white kid literally, Joy Rady, he would put his hands up to be handcuffed and the white policewoman patted him on the shoulder and told him, no, you're free to go. Wow. Uh, Zakai, when the police had you detained, what did they ask you or what did they tell you? Did they tell you why uh, you were being detained? Uh, they said it was basic protocol. And did they explain to you why the other kid was not? Uh, no. And what did they did, did they interrogate you? Did they did you did you feel that they were um, accusing you of a crime? Kind of, yes. And, and I guess the other question I have to ask you, and this is harder to ask because you are a, a, a child younger than my children. Were you as when you were on the floor and the police were on top of you at any time? Did you fear for your safety at the hands of those officers? Uh, yes, I was like scared. Didn't know what would happen next and if they were going to take it any farther. And is that because of other incidents that you've seen happen to other young black men? Yes. How do you feel about police in general or how did you feel about them before before this happened? I don't really know. I didn't really have like a opinion about them because I see stuff online, but I know not all of them are like that. So I don't mm. And I haven't seen anything in real life to have an opinion about it. But then now you, I feel like yeah. they treat me, they treat certain people differently. Some, some might treat certain people differently. Mm -hmm. And when you went home to talk to your parents about it, what did they tell you? What did, what did your dad tell you? Uh, he told me, he told me that, uh, 
But I think it wasn't really much of a conversation. They had like the conversation with me that I might get treated differently because of my skin color and stuff. But my yeah. I think my mom went back to say something to us, but they weren't. And dad, let me ask you a question. What do you want to see happen here? Um, I want just, I feel like this is ridiculous that my son was treated in this manner and that the other child involved had no penalty. I think it's very unjust. And, you know, I'm a veteran. I served in the military and I've experienced training and I know what training is. And if this is what they consider to be a trained officer, I want to see justice and I want to see either retraining or for them to lose their badge. Ben, um, what happens next? Is, is this family planning to sue this police department? I think we have to hold them accountable, George, because if we don't, what happens next? Can you imagine if they knew there were children in the mall videotaping and they still racially discriminated against Zakai? What happened if they were on a dark street? I mean, that's why we have to hold them accountable, Joy. And we are asking for uh, internal investigation. But we also want the state to investigate. Uh, and if not, we're prepared to do what we have to do to make sure there's accountability. Yeah, indeed. Um, Zakai Hussein, I am so sorry that this happened to you. Um, it's not something that a 14 year old should have to experience or that anyone should have to experience in their own country. So I am sorry that this happened to you, young man. And thank you for coming on. Thank you, Jihad Hussein. Really appreciate you uh, allowing us to talk to your to your son. And uh, my friend Ben Crump, always appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll stick around. Thank you guys very much. Okay, we'll stick around. Ooh, because tonight's absolute worst are happily sipping on a fine wine distilled from racial anger and hysteria. We'll be right back. Black History Month 2022 has been just filled with special treats from this era of permanent Trumpism. Gender hysteria over critical race theory, whose meaning has been perverted to basically mean anything woke. Book bans targeting works by black authors like Toni Morrison, as well as the 1619 Project in any history that doesn't present white Americans or Europeans as perennially noble or which might make the parents of white children feel uncomfortable. Proposed laws in states like Florida encouraging literal surveillance of teachers to make sure they stick to the state run script under his eye. Racist, misogynistic attacks on black women athletes, including these lacrosse players from Howard University. Schools like this one in Indiana making Black History Month optional for parents who, I guess, think knowing historical black figures will break their children. It's a wonder Republican governors haven't tried to make Black History Month illegal yet. We are now facing the most direct, concentrated attacks on the right to vote since the 1960s, along with, yes, bomb threats. Lots of bomb threats against historically black colleges and universities. This map alone is appalling. 30 HBCUs where young people congregate and learn have been the target of these bomb threats, mostly during Black History Month, which is certainly no coincidence, including three just yesterday in the Carolinas, targeting Fayetteville State University and Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina and Claflin University in South Carolina. I guess when one political party decides to weaponize anti-blackness and social change discomfort among their voters by whipping white parents into a frenzy over learning history or about people who are different from you or about wearing masks to prevent a virus from spreading and killing people, 
Well, I guess there are consequences. And while not all violence can be connected to a country's politics, we are in a dangerous atmosphere in America right now, where particularly for conservatives, politics have become everything from a tribal identity to a religious movement. One might even call it a cult. And it's not like we haven't been here before. The old Democrats who morphed into the Dixiecrats did it to kill Reconstruction and make sure it stayed dead for more than 100 years. And the Republicans who morphed from the Dixiecrats are doing it now. And today's Republican Party, who, let's be clear, are now the party of Trump, not Lincoln, have decided to use the worst tendencies of the disgraced former president, distill them down into a fine wine of anger and hysteria, all for the cynical purpose of gaining power. They and their right-wing media friends aren't stopping. They're stepping on the gas. HBCU presidents, meanwhile, are calling on the Justice Department to step up their investigation of these serial bomb threats. The FBI has identified six juveniles as persons of interest, described as tech-savvy and, to surprise, had a racist motive. Nearly six decades after the Ku Klux Klan bombed a church in Birmingham and killed four little girls, these age-old racist tactics are terrorizing Black institutions all over again. And those behind those threats and the culture that enables it are the absolute worst. And up next, we hear from a student at Howard University, one of the country's largest HBCU, HBCUs, about what she thinks these bomb threats are really about. Stay with us. Now students like Ashley Fields are back in class with a lot of questions. We've not received any word about whether the two have been connected or, you know, where the threat has come from. It's not the ideal environment for students trying to learn. At least 30 historically black colleges and universities have been the targets of bomb threats in recent days and weeks. Among those targeted is Howard University, which has faced at least four separate bomb threats in the past two months, including on February 1st, the first day of Black History Month. Joining me now is Jordan Allen, a junior at Howard University, where she's also chairwoman of the Howard University Student Association Senate. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for being here. Um, I can't imagine um, what it is like to be, you know, at college, um, just trying to focus on class and being around your friends and having to worry about bomb threats. Unfortunately, this is something that historically uh, black students have had to deal with just living in this country um, and going to church historically. We have a picture here from 1963. You know, there was a time when black folks had to worry about going to church and getting bombed. Tell me how you're doing, how your friends are doing and dealing with this. Hi, Ms. Reed. First off, thank you for having me and creating this platform for us to talk about something that is so important. And really, for me and my friends attending an HBCU in a moment like this, there's a lot of confusion and fear. But really, at the end of the day, specifically for students at Howard University, it feels more like a personal attack to the excellence and brilliance that HBCUs are known to produce. And I mean, including the vice president of the United States, who is a Howard alum, right? I mean, we're in this moment where we have a black woman vice president who is a Howard alum, the first HBCU um, graduate to be in, in either of those positions, president or vice president. So you have this moment and you have these attacks on history that are taking place, these attacks on supposed critical race theory, these attacks on the 1619 Project. As you think it through, do you feel like that those atmospherics are contributing to the violence and the threats that you're seeing? 
I mean, absolutely. I grew up in predominantly white institutions in elementary, middle school and high school. So coming to an HBCU was a different experience. But really, my HBCU experience has shown me that there was history that wasn't necessarily taught um, when I was in high school or other schools that I've attended. And so I think what this moment has really shown is really in those other institutions, they can control um, through different policies, specifically in Florida, on what is discussed in the classroom. But because they can't control the curricula that is being taught at HBCUs, we are now attacking the establishments of HBCUs as a whole. You know, yeah. And you, are you from Florida originally? I am from Florida. So what do you make? I mean, the, the, the governor of Florida right now is on the attack uh, against what he calls the Stop Woke Act, against teaching um, any kind of history that doesn't affirm and uplift uh, white people and makes them feel uncomfortable. Um, there are these attempts to even pass legislation to video surveil teachers. All of that at a time when HBCUs are facing these kind of pressures and attacks and threats. What do you make of it? You know, Ms. Reed, I think that it's really, really sad, but I think that it is something that African-Americans have seen throughout history and we have consistently overcome, right? So even when we talk about segregation, it was never surface level about whether blacks and whites could operate within the same spaces. It was about denying knowledge and um, education to African-Americans. And so what I see is we see our black organizations, our black Greek letter organizations, organizations like Jack and Jill of America Incorporated who have stepped up in the past to ensure that that history is not erased. And so what I think that we will see is those organizations continuing to step up to ensure that our history is not erased. And, uh, you know, it is ironic, isn't it, that it used to be that the attacks and threats and the, the, the spitting on and the, and, the, and the attacks were about black students trying to get into schools that were that were all white schools at that time. It was the Ruby Bridges. It was trying to desegregate colleges. And now the they're flipping it the other way and saying, oh, you know what? The schools where you are attending that are predominantly black, we're just going to threaten to blow those up. Your thoughts? No, Ms. Reed, like it's it's crazy because in my house, we have that exact picture of Ruby Bridges. So I would walk out, go to school, knowing that it was an honor to even be able to walk into those spaces. And so I think for me, it really is sad, but it has shown time after time again that although history is not repeating itself, we have to be very conscious of the way that it does rhyme and the way that they are creating new tactics to hold African-Americans back. And what would you say um, to, that you would like to see the FBI do? I mean, do you think that there's enough is being done um, to get to the bottom of these cases? And what would you like to see done? I think what I'd like to see done is more awareness, specifically from the media. It seems as though if this happened at a PWI, there would be a lot more coverage. Um, so I yeah. would like for our stories to be told more and mm -hmm. on a larger scale. And I think from the FBI, it's, it's a touchy subject, right? Um, you were talking yeah. earlier about how the police are treating African-Americans opposed to white. So it's a really touchy subject yeah. when we bring in police officers to protect our spaces during times like yeah. these, because we don't necessarily feel comfortable. So I think it's a bigger conversation on how we can all feel safe. Indeed. And, isn't, and ain't that the irony? Jordan Allen, the future is in good hands with uh, young folks like you out there. So thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you. And that is tonight's readout. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.